Hey everyone, Ray here. I've got a book recommendation for you. No, this is not a book interview. We're done with those for a while now. Quite frankly, I'm all interviewed out. Nope, it's back to the main storyline. Anyway, so about this latest book, The Watchmakers. Almost three decades ago, Harry Linga sat down with his son and told him of the long years he and his two brothers had spent in one concentration camp after the other during World War II. They endured the horrors of Auschwitz and survived. How did they do it? The three brothers had vowed never to be parted, in life or in death. But they also had a skill that bound them together, the art, science, and craft of watchmaking. The Linga family's journey from Poland to the German death camps to their liberation in 1945 is told in a new book, The Watchmakers, a moving and extraordinary epic of resilience, endurance, and faith in the face of inhumanity, and the unique horological skills that kept the three brothers together and alive during the darkest times of World War II, an important addition to Holocaust literature. The Watchmakers, from Kensington Publishing, is available everywhere books are sold. For more about The Watchmakers, visit Scott Linga. L-E-N-G-A dot com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 372, Malta Loses a Hero. Last time, having gotten up to March of 1942, the defenders of Malta were at a low point. Yet they wondered, how could they not, could it get any worse? They were about to get an answer. Their latest convoy delivery had been a disaster. The island's airfields were being bombed daily. Hell, one bomb that landed near a pilot's residence at Takali actually lifted him up into the air 20 feet, and it placed him on the second floor of his building. He was unhurt, but wasted no time in thanking his guardian angel. Either way, Malta was being pounded, and General Kesselring was not going to stop until the island was his. The Second Battle of Serta, which resulted in little additional supplies reaching Malta, occurring on March 22nd, was covered last time. But it may be remembered that the Allied air response could have been more. Here's why it wasn't. Two days previous, March 20th, was payday. Normally, something to be excited about. After all, by payday, most guys were down to their last shillings, but not so at this moment. The air raids had been so regular that the men did not have the normal amount of time to go out and spend their hard-earned currency on things that would make them forget the war, and March 20th was no different. On that day at Takali, just left or west of the center of the island, Two pilots got to watch, there was little else they could do, as 63 Junkers 88s and their escorts flew by, giving the place the once-over. Kesselring's intelligence service had figured out that the enemy was keeping most of their newly arrived Spitfires here, along with many of the new pilots. So Zara Palace was hit, hard and often. By the time the pilots came out of hiding, they saw the handiwork of the Junkers. Buildings were on fire or simply gone. Hangars were a mess, their blast pens beyond tested, and several planes, or rather their shells, 
were on fire. Per the German records, this location had just received 114 tons of explosives, courtesy of the Axis pilots. The cleaning up started the moment the enemy planes were away, but the next morning, 200 planes flew over to finish the destruction. This time, 182 tons of bombs were left behind. The British pilots wondered how much longer the military structure of Malta could take this. And what was happening at the Zara Palace was happening at the other airfields and major urban areas. The pilot, who had been lifted 20 feet to be deposited on his second-story building, Buck McNair, could still not believe that he was alive and in one piece. In fact, his hands kept rummaging all over his body for the next few minutes to make sure that all pieces and parts were present and accounted for. The only thing left for Buck to do was to check on the many bodies around him to see who was still alive. As he began to stumble towards the first body, he wondered why there wasn't more blood. Oh, he was relieved, to be sure, but curious, as there were obviously many bodies around him. But he got his answer when he touched a wall to steady himself. Despite its grayness, his hand slid down the wall, almost making him fall. When he looked at his hand, it was not gray, but red with blood, as was the part of the wall he had touched. The dust, it seems, was covering everything, making it gray. Buck decided that was probably for the best. From there, it only got worse. The next body didn't even have a head. Another body was crushed, and one poor soul had something land on his head, practically cutting it in two. Buck quickly looked away, that is, until the man moaned. Amazingly, he was still alive, but could not be for long. No one could survive that. Which actually made Buck contemplate, for a second, whether he should shoot the man himself to put him out of his misery. On second thought, that was up to the medics. Buck left the building to go get this man some help. Another factor of too few Allied fighters trying to help with the Second Battle of Serta, or of even defending Malta, was the rush that had been put on to get the Spitfires to the island. On March 21st, one day before the Battle of Serta, nine more Spitfires had arrived, but such was the haste that they had not yet been fitted with tropical air filters, nor were their guns aligned. But they made great targets for the Junkers flying overhead. Indeed, one Spitfire had to be sacrificed to create enough spare parts for the other surviving planes. Between this and having to share the new planes with the mostly American-manned 126 Squadron, the 249 fighter pilots simply had to wait their turn and not die until such time. So when the Second Battle of Serta took place, Malta was able to send up a whole five Spitfires to help out. That is, as long as they could deal with the just over 200 Axis planes involved in that attack. As bad as the airfields were being treated, it wasn't any better for the various dock facilities around the island. So as the wounded convoy ships arrived at Malta, the brave Maltese workers got to it, but were hampered by the damaged facilities. Still, they started unloading, but soon the Ju-88s were back, further slowing down the unloading process. 
As we have seen, little was saved of the convoy, and the ships were lost. But just before that, 18 Spitfires and Hurricanes were taken out of their crates and saved. But this news was balanced out by this next bit. News started spreading, it had started as a rumor but was quickly proven true, that during the nights of March 24th and 25th, none of the Maltese workers had showed up to unload. The British were beyond pissed, but slowly realized it wasn't fear that was keeping the locals from their work. No, there had been an administrative mistake on the British's part for not making sure that the workers were told to report for duty. As such, for those two nights that did not see a single access plane overhead, nothing had been unloaded of the vital supplies. Now, this was a major faux pas. Someone had to pay the price, and Air Marshal Hugh Pugh Lloyd was going to make sure it was not him, by making sure the axe fell on Governor Dobby. Hugh Pugh wrote to Churchill saying everything was Dobby's fault and that the locals were too afraid to work or just too lazy. The truth was, Hugh Pugh, like Dobby and a few others, were all on the administrative council and should have been aware of all details, certainly when it came to unloading these latest supplies in sinking ships, no less, while bombs and bullets were falling from the sky. No, this was Hugh Pugh's lowest point morally speaking, alongside Malta's lowest point, literally speaking. A bit of good news, the Breckenshire and Talabot had sunk in shallow water, so the unloading of those vessels continued, kind of. Still, in the end, only 5,200 tons of the 26 tons of the convoy were salvaged, which meant simply Malta's offensive abilities had to be put on hold. For example, 37 Squadron now only had one operational Wellington, and their bombs and reconnaissance photos had been beyond price. They had saved so many lives. And more good news, another seven Spitfires arrived on March 29th. Not that this mattered much compared to the dozens or hundreds of enemy planes that flew over the island each day. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As if it could not get any worse, well, it did anyways. 
That same month, March, the first Sea Lord, Dudley Pound, decided that Admiral Cunningham needed a break. And he did. Yet he did not want to go like this, with the Mediterranean fleet at a low point. But orders were orders. ABC was now on his way to Washington to lead the Admiralty delegation there. To ease his bruised soul, or ego, but Cunningham was legitimately worn out, considering the numerous convoys, the stoppage of Axis convoys, and then there had been those heady days, the battles of Taranto, of Matapan, the sinking of enemy ships by his subs, and Force K. Yes, these had been good days, but now those good days belonged to Kesselring, because if the Allies were somehow going to retake the momentum, it would have to be done with the personnel that stayed in the Mediterranean. And ABC's replacement, Admiral Sir Harry Hardwood, the hero of the Battle of the River Plate in December of 1939, where the Germans would end up losing their heavy cruiser, Admiral Graf Spee, was looking forward to the challenge. As he left, Admiral Cunningham wrote a letter to the people of Malta, thanking them for their courage, and yet... He may have been a little too on the nose, as ABC was wont to do. Near the end of his letter, which was published in the Times of Malta, he added that all the bombs raining down on their little island, and by this point there had been 117 consecutive air attacks, sometimes 10 a day, the Admiral asked the Maltese to think about all those bombs that were landing here. They were not landing in North Africa or on the Eastern Front, or on the home island, that this was a great service the island was enduring for the empire. Though how much this bucked up the spears of the locals, who can say? General Dobby would say much the same thing during a radio address, that the bombs falling here were not helping the Axis in Africa or in Russia. But these dark times would continue for a while. However, privately, Dobby told the Air Ministry that Malta can only continue to be useful if we are able to protect the ships and aircraft which operate from here. And that was quickly coming to an end. Further, he added on that a few Spitfire deliveries here and there were nice, but nothing of Malta's current dismal status would change until larger numbers of planes arrived on the island, period. But had Dobby... Cunningham and Hugh Pugh known the truth, they might have given up right then and there. For all of the bombings that Malta had suffered lately, that had been just a warm-up. Kesselring's true attempt to crush Malta would actually start on April 2nd. For weeks earlier, Kesselring had met with his staff and told them how he wanted Malta to be brought low. First, the defenders' fighters had to be taken out, either literally or enough so they could not challenge the bombers. Next, the three main airfields would be hit with heavy bombs, and with anti-personnel bombs, and with machine gun fire. Anything and everything should be thrown at the landing areas, rendering them equally useless. And they would return at night, though in smaller numbers, to make sure that repairs were hampered and that sleep was little. When that happened, the island would be bombed daily, the ships and planes too afraid to return, the result being Malta could either be occupied or ignored, as it no longer could function as an Allied military base. Lastly, General Kurt Student, 
the airborne leader who planned the landings on Crete, was ordered to come up with another plan, this time for Malta. Of course, the Allied troops on Malta, nor the Maltese, knew any of Kesselring's details, but they understood well enough the possibility of an invasion, thus threw their backs into their respective jobs. Again, April 2nd was to be the big day, but the first day of April was impressive enough, with dozens of Junkers coming over to once again attack the airfields and the port facilities. To the defenders, this was just another day, but there were changes on the ground. For one, some new AA shells had come in, and the men were loading them and firing them off with a renewed hope. However, undermining that new hope was a new fear, as just a few days ago, an AA gun crew had a German bomb land right on top of them. The crew at Spinola, just north of the Grand Harbor, disappeared, and the other crews around them had human flesh and body parts rained down on them. Hence, the AA firing of April 1st was spirited, to say the least. Again, the Germans and Italians may have known that this day's attack was only a warm-up to the following day, but the defenders did not. So, they let fly with the shrapnel. And between their increased panic and increased effectiveness of their new shells, the attackers lost more men and planes than anticipated. Also, there were more defending aircraft in the sky than expected. Working overtime, the new normal on Malta, the RAF had eight Spitfires and 19 Hurricanes that were flyable on April 1st. And fortunately for these outnumbered pilots, amongst the attackers were the relatively slow Stukas. Kesselring was throwing everything he had in, but he would have been better served to keep his weaker aircraft at home, at least until the defenders around Malta had been weakened. As such, several Stukas were taken out that day. As for the Allied losses, to hear Hugh Pugh put it, through the Times of Malta, 27 attackers were destroyed, the defenders lost not a single plane. Which didn't sound right to RAF pilot Raoul Daudo Longlet. He had been there for a while and had already lost too many friends. But if he needed tangible proof, the next time Raoul was aloft, there were only eight planes around him. Clearly, somebody was lying. Staying with Raoul for a second, he, like every other pilot when not flying, was helping with cleaning up after each raid. This made him appreciate the ground crews even more. But the next day, as there had been no planes for him, when he was helping clear around his airstrip, a Ju-88 came along and the attended victims dove for the nearest slit trench. After the bombing stopped, the men got up, dusted themselves off, and smiled at each other, as to say, not today. But that's when two 109s came in, hot and blazing. Back into the trench, the men went. They survived the second attack as well, but realized Kesselring, or whoever was tweaking their attacks, was trying to remove as many personnel from the ground as possible. Yes, an invasion had to be coming. This intense bombing continued and on April 7th, the Royal Opera House was destroyed. Located on the Scriberos Peninsula, which is mostly covered by Valletta, the capital itself, 
Along with many shops and apartments, they were now in ruins, and those who happened to be there at the time were now missing. As the Opera House had been the pride of the Maltese, its destruction did not generate fear so much as anger. Clearly, the Germans were trying to force the locals to submit, but that would not be happening. The islanders' dander was up. The Venerable Opera House had been built in 1866. A fire gutted it in 1873, but it was revived in 1877. And there it stood, that is, until April 7, 1942. Now it was just one more blast site where cleanup crews would go for bodies to be removed. As for the latest bomb victims, well, the ones that survived, they were given three days to gather their things and find a new place before having to return to work. Yes, this was horrible, this was unfair, but there was a war on. That night, the Germans returned again, this time dropping incendiary bombs, trying to take out those who were cleaning up. So much for Kessel's ring statement after the war when he said they deliberately avoided civilian targets. The next day, April 9th, the bombing continued. This time, the Sacred Heart Church in Slima was hit. For the Maltese, this proved that the enemy was out to break the will of the people. As one local put it, the enemy knows that our churches are dear to us. Families have been brought up under the shadow of their spires for generations, and it is their intention to hurt us where it hurts most. That same day, the Germans tried to reproduce their attack on a church by bombing the Rotunda Church near Takali, in the center of the island. But here, the third largest suspended dome in the world was protected either by a higher power or German inefficiency. The bomb landed on the dome, went right through it, but then bounced around and came to a halt, all without detonating. Clearly, it was a miracle, which could not be said for a shelter at Luka to the southwest of Takali. There, 25 civilians were killed when it received a direct hit. As the bombing continued, the Axis goals were being checked off. Water, electricity, and food delivery were now all irregular, to put it mildly. Also, homes were now being destroyed faster than ever. Before April, some 800 homes a month were destroyed. That number was increasing, which meant more and more people were now homeless. The government reacted to this by asking more and more people to take in refugees, which they did. But now, no one could tell for sure when they would receive supplies to help with these increased number of hungry mouths. Hell had come to Malta. But as bad as it was for the homeowners, or those who ran shops, the dockyards around Grand Harbor were hit even worse. The surface ships had already been ordered out, as the AA gunners could not protect them any further which left the Force K cruiser HMS Penelope in dock as she was still being repaired. But given the last few days, it was decided she too had to go. So many of her holes were filled with wood, and on the night of April 8th, she headed out of the harbor. But by now, there were so many shrapnel and bullet holes in her, she was unofficially known as HMS Pepperpot. The hell that the Royal Navy was going through wasn't anything new, but the intensity had risen in the last few days. 
Back on April 1st, the sub Pandora, a part of the Magic Carpet Service bringing supplies to the island, was bombed while in Grand Harbor. Her conning tower released a massive flame as fire broke out below. Four minutes later, she was gone, along with two officers and 23 ratings. As other naval personnel ran to help the stricken sub, they would later write off reports of trying to help, despite one man missing his lower arm, taken off by shrapnel. Another man had a piece of steel sticking out of his thigh. Secondary explosions, obviously, were equally dangerous. That same day, the sub P-36 was sunk while berthed in Lazaretto on Manuel Island, just above Valletta. A third sub, called Sokol, had a Polish crew, and they believed they were next, but they were still in port under repairs. Wisely, that crew worked on the sub only at night, and during the day it was moved and covered with a camouflage netting, which is the only reason it survived that day's attack. But Shrimp Simpson, the sub-commander, was still worried. To thank Shrimp for his use of his facilities, Boris Karnicki of the so-called told him, Don't worry, you and I will meet up after the war. In fact, he added, when you come to Poland after the war, just ask for the office of the Commissar of the Socialization of Women. Clearly, the submariner thought highly of himself, as most men in uniform do. But Shrimp knew that even if the Polish sub was repaired, getting away from Malta was no longer an easy thing. The Germans had joined in with the Italians in laying mines around the exit points for Malta's ships and subs. Still, the Polish crew made it safely away six days later, which only depressed Shrimp more as his stable of operable subs was shrinking fast. He had to consider the time when he would have to tell London and Hugh Pugh that he was unable to operate for the time being. Hopefully, it wouldn't come to that. Still in Shrimp's cupboard was the submarine Upholder. But for how much longer? The Upholder had returned from its latest outing on March 26th. But besides basic repairs and resupplying, many of her crew had now come down with the flu. As it was a tiny living space, the germs had no problem spreading throughout the ship. Now many of the crew were on their backs. Still, the sub and her string of successes were needed, so she would have to go out again. But Shrimp recognized that the men were at the end of their tether. So he thought, if RAF pilots can go home after six months, and many of the upholder crew had been here for 16 months, well, they deserved a rest too. He told Lieutenant Commander Malcolm D. Winklin, Winks and his crew that after this sortie, they would be heading home. A well-deserved break indeed. Winklin and company set out on April 6th. They had with them an army officer and two Arab agents. The latter two were to be dropped off on the North African coast for reconnaissance work. This was completed on the night of April 9th. Then the upholder was ordered to meet with the sub unbeaten. She was already heading home and was directed to take that army officer with them. This was done. The unbeaten started west, while the upholder went back on her patrol with each man, certainly Wanks, counting the days. He had already written a letter to his wife, saying he would be home soon. 
As word came of another Axis convoy leaving Italy, Shrimp Simpson ordered the upholder, Urge, and Thrasher to be in position on April 15th to intercept. Yet the day before, April 14th, the sub Urge heard several depth charge explosions just to the northeast of Tripoli. The crew knew that an Italian reconnaissance plane had spotted an antenna and had called on the destroyer Pegaso to attack. It had to be the upholder, but the Urge's captain told his crew, Don't worry, lads, the upholder can handle herself. It was best for them to get ready for tomorrow's attack. But when the time came, there were only two subs waiting for the convoy. The upholder did not report in, and in fact, was never heard from again. Lieutenant Commander Malcolm David Wanklin and his crew now passed into legend. It was either the Italian destroyer Picasso or a mine near Tripoli which did in the upholder. Later investigations would lean towards contact with the mine, but as there was no debris ever discovered, it remains a mystery. Due to low morale overall and the contribution of the upholder, the Admiralty stepped outside its normal announcements to say something about the upholder and her crew. When, on April 22, 1942, the Admiralty announced her loss, the communique carried with it an unusual tribute to Wanklin and his men. It is seldom proper for their lordships to draw distinction between different services rendered in the course of naval duty, but they take this opportunity of singling out those of HMS Upholder under the command of Lieutenant Commander David Wanklin for special mention. She was long employed against enemy communications in the central Mediterranean, and she became noted for the uniformly high quality of her services in that arduous and dangerous duty. Such was the standard of skill and daring set by Lieutenant Commander Wanklin and his officers and the men under him that they and their ship became an inspiration not only to their own flotilla, but to the fleet of which it was a part and to Malta where for so long HMS was based. The ship and her company are gone, but the example and inspiration remain. Their kind was not to be looked upon again, but in her time, the upholder sank 12 Italian vessels, two German freighters, all told some 93,000 tons of enemy shipping. Tubby Crawford, the former second-in-command, now training in the Irish Sea, was told of the news and was crestfallen. He told a local newspaper, Wanklin always thought about his crew, and that, though Wanklin did miss two patrols of the upholder, he had spent all that time worrying about his men and their ship, so even that had not been a break for the captain. Malcolm David Wanklin would be missed and more like him were needed if Malta was going to survive the summer of 1942. Postscript. The bombing raids will grow to such an extent that the 10th flotilla will be removed from Malta and sent to Alexandria later in April. One such sub was the aforementioned Urge. She set out on April 27th, but never made it to Egypt. On May 6th, she was reported overdue. 
On board had been 29 crewmen and 10 passengers. Only in 2019 were her remains found. She had hit a mine while surfaced just outside Grand Harbor. The access mine lane was beginning to pay off. An investigation showed that the explosion had been so strong, the bow of the sub had become separated, which caused her to sink quickly with no survivors. On April 27, 2022, the 80th anniversary of her final mission, the Royal Navy unveiled a memorial to HMS Urge and the sailors lost as a result of the sinking. Greetings, everyone from Central Virginia. So I just uh, had to take a moment after recording that because that was very emotional, having all those people that we've gotten to know over the years, some of them passing away or leaving their post when they're needed most, but such is war. Um, I would like to thank and welcome aboard the latest members, um, Paul Milne from Ediba, Minnesota. Paul, I know I butchered that. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, Timothy Morton from, oh, here we go, Wawatosa, Wisconsin. Mark Gosselin um, from Maine, Green, Maine, I think. he. Uh, I think I got that right. He donated and became a member. So, Mark, you're my new best friend. Uh, David Reeves from Port Orchard, Washington. Michael Teasdale from Newbury Park, California. And lastly, Reese uh, Cormick. Um, from the Australian Capital Territory, so obviously somewhere down under. Hey, Reese, thank you very much for supporting the show. As for donations, um, there was Robert J. Kastner, Jr., and Robert, I threw on the junior because I'm a junior, and gosh darn it, we should be proud of ourselves. Um, Stephen Haas and Jeremy Thompson. So thank you for those who have become members, those who have donated. Um, And lastly, I'm sorry, I almost forgot about this. Uh, I'm going to put this link in the show notes of this episode, but I just want to let you know there's a gentleman uh, who reached out to me. He is trying to make a short film of World War II, and but he's still at the Kickstarter stage. So if you could please go to my notes on this episode, click on the link, but he's basically trying to... Um, gather the money to to make this project happen, which would really be cool. I'd like to see it because he was telling me about it, and I think it would be neat. So if you have just a couple of bucks to spare for a Kickstarter campaign about a short film about World War II, uh, please check it out. Um, and of course, you know how Kickstarter works. You either get all of your money or you don't, and I really hope he gets it. So I'm going to read this out, but I'm also going to put it on the show notes as well. So it's www.kickstarter.com slash projects slash Anthony Trolley, T-R-O-L-I, slash Don't Shoot the Messenger. I love that, by the way. And I and I believe Don't Shoot the Messenger is the name of the, of the project. So again, you got a couple of bucks, you got a couple of minutes, if you could help out. Um, and maybe we can all become get credit and become producers of this film, and that would be great. But anyway, anything you could do to help out would be greatly appreciated by all of us. Take care, everyone.